Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, this is completely my comfort zone today and for that reason, Lockie's here as well. You all right, Lockie? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. it's been a fine. World War One nerding today, um, right up our alley. Who's with us? We got Dr. Nick Lloyd uh, with us. He's here to introduce his new book, The Western Front. He himself is a reader in military and imperial history in the Defence Studies Department at King's College London. Okay, right. I do, so you are in a room with two nerds of your own ilk. Um, so I just let's just crack on because <laughs> we have so many questions. First of all, let's cover the book and um, <clears throat> what it is and who's it for because this is a big book. It arrived and I was like, wow, this is this is chunky. Lockie's holding it up. Um, who did you write it for? Is this aimed at the likes of Lockie and I, um, or is this aimed at a general reader? Is this sort of trying to bring World War One to a wider audience? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a popular history book, so it's aimed at you know, it's aimed as a, at a wide as wide an audience as possible, really. Um, I think uh, you know, I, I wrote the book I wanted to read, really. So I, I just I was fortunate that I could do what I wanted to do. So I wrote a big narrative history. I wanted to get all the key characters in there and I want to do the whole thing. So I wrote the book I wanted to write and I wrote it essentially for me. Um, but I think, you know, I think people who are broadly familiar with the war might get a lot out of it. I think people who have known nothing about the war will hopefully be able to follow it along as they go through. Um, but I think for people who obviously, like yourselves, are, are experts in it, um, I think it does offer something slightly different to perhaps what we've got at the moment. What would you say makes it different uh, in that way? If, if this is going to make the claim to be the definitive book on the Western Front, which you know, hopefully we are, um, what, what makes it that? That's the thing, isn't it? Your publishers are loving this. We've got the press release as well, and they're saying, like, this is the definitive now Western Front book. Um, why is that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think obviously the publisher really wants to to see it do as well as it can for, for obvious reasons. But I think there are a number of reasons why the book, uh, these claims are made. Um, it covers all the, all the sides. So it covers the French, it covers the Germans, the British, uh, and of course the Americans. So you have a sort of comprehensive view of the war that, um, that I think is quite different from from certainly the Anglo-centric view of the war that we that we're so used to, and which incorporates the entire entirety of the uh, the strategy and the politics and all that kind of thing. So, 
I think for a lot of readers, a lot of it will be quite unfamiliar. Uh, you followed the French and Germans initially, and then the British come in a bit more. And then, you know, you get the Americans. So you have the whole, you know, you have the whole sort of sweep of it, really. Um, and that was really what I wanted to do and what I found most interesting. I have to ask, so what is, for that reason, you've had to work in a, um, oh, sorry, <clears throat> I'm on the wrong question. Let me go back. To that end, what battle or element do you think um, you've brought the biggest new um, or the biggest amount of change to? So what part of the war will we see differently as a result of reading this? I think you'll see the whole thing. So I don't necessarily think it's it's one individual battle that has a new spin. I think it's the it's the entirety of the project and the whole span of the war and how the Allies get it together by 1918 and win. Um so I think for a lot of people, it's it's going to be the French. It's going to be certainly the early days of the French army and their struggles that most of us don't really have a lot of a, a kind of perspective on. The French are sort of the other on the Western Front. So this incorporates that whole story. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, before being a historian, I was a, I was a linguist. I was a languages grad, graduate, my first degree. And so I, you know, I appreciate the, the French coming in, but that's, that's not the only foreign language that's, that's there. You've got German sources. I think there was even a Portuguese, uh, language source, uh, in there as well. What, what was it like working in all those different languages? Yeah, it takes time. It takes time. It's the most, it's the most difficult thing. It, the German stuff is the, you know, the worst I found. Well, not, not the worst, the, the most time consuming to go through the stuff and to try and find the anecdotes and the, the quotes that I wanted. So the, 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 that takes the time. The French is slightly easier for me. Um, but I think it's, it just, it takes the time and it, it, I mean, the British stuff is, is easy. It goes really quickly. I can do the British and the Americans is really easy to write, but it's the French and the Germans that I really had to emphasize and put a lot of time in to give them that, that sort of, um, that presence to be able to tell their story. So, you know, now I'm writing about the Eastern Front. So I've got, you know, this is, this is like much more difficult. So we've got obviously Russian, Serbian, Italian, German and the, and ironically on the Eastern Front, German is the easiest for me, <laughs> but everything else. Is. So yeah, that, that was really key and I enjoyed doing it and I enjoyed doing the, um, learning about certainly the French army and their early struggles and, and the way they developed. I found that fascinating. And, you know, you've always got the, because I think one of the crucial things about the book is you've got, you, you follow the characters and you, you see what they're trying to do. You see the advances they try to make and then you then see what the Germans are doing to respond. So you have that constant sort of back and forth, back and forth. And I think that's probably what's, uh, I don't say unique, but but a big strength of the book is that you you see how things evolve. And, you know, you're cheering on at times, you're cheering on the Allies, they're able to do this, and then you see what the Germans do, and you think, oh, what are they going to do now? And that dichotomy, JFC Fuller called it the constant tactical factor, which, you know, which is that crucial part of warfare that we often forget so you know i find that fascinating but yeah in terms of the language stuff the language stuff took the most time that was the the most challenging bit and expensive getting getting all properly then you know all the sections i wanted then properly translated so that's it's it's time and money unfortunately yeah but i mean i, I think it, especially drifting into eastern europe and you know for, for for two more books coming up i think it's 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 bold i mean there was there was one translation 
I, I sort of had to, I, I brought out my massive German dictionary for it because I, I, you know, I wasn't sure about it. And that was the, um, the, the Verdun offensive has the code name Gericht. Uh, and the way you've translated that is, is place of execution. I thought it was a, a pretty unorthodox, um, translation of it. I think I've seen it done as, as court of justice. Uh, I think that's Holger Herwig's one. Jankowski's gone with judgment. Um, it, does it ever kind of worry you with all these kind of languages that, um, people, that other people are going to interpret things differently? Oh yeah, no, of course. I think, you know, you, you, you get into that and you, I think if people are, you know, I think people can go back and retranslate it or they can find what I've translated, of course, and, and can, can essentially assess how accurate it is. So I think that's absolutely fine. That's why all the footnotes are there so they can, they can look at it. I think place of execution just sounds so dramatic. And, you know, once I saw that, I thought, yeah, that's, that's how I like it. So again, it's just the sort of, for me, it was something that's, um, I, I guess about the drama and about the kind of intensity and the horror of it that I, I really liked. So, you know, you, you try and, you try and add that level of tension and drama to it to keep the reader interested and to keep the, just to remind them of how enormous all this is and how horrible it is. This book is big, and necessarily so. The Western Front is a huge topic. How did you pick what not to pick in? So I look at it, so if we give the reader an example, uh, the listener an example, sorry, because they haven't read it yet, we hope they all will. Uh, the British Infantry Assault on the 1st of July 1916 is covered in a couple of pages. Um, do you think it's fair to say that um, this is not the book to pick up if you want to look at the individual soldier's experience? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think there are elements of that within the book, um, but the focus is not on the individual soldier in the trench. Uh, it's it's on the generals and it's on that higher strategic and operational level, how the politicians and generals worked or didn't work together, how they tried to deal with the problems they encountered on the Western Front. So. I think I try to bring out sort of the elements of the battlefields and roughly what they might have looked like. But the the, the concentration is on those characters um, and their struggles as they go through and try and work out what to do, make mistakes, struggle, do good things, uh, get sacked, come back. So it's it's very much on those those individuals, um, and the, the war is a sort of is is out there. But it's not a focus. I mean, there's so many fantastic books to read if you're interested in, you know, the story of, a, you know, an individual battalion or, you know, what it was like to to serve on the Western Front. So I guess it's fair to say you concentrate on on why things happened rather than how things happened necessarily. I think the kind of political insight is is one of the strengths um, of the book. Um, I guess the avoidance of of getting bogged down in kind of tactical discussions uh, is, is maybe an essential product of having so much to cover. Yeah. You've got to make choices. And, and I think, you know, I have elements of that in, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not a major, well, it's, it's, it's a theme of the book, but it's not something that I can really get bogged down into too much. So, you know, each chapter is about sort of two to three months some chapters are shorter. 1914 is difficult to write because so much happens so quickly. Um, so you have to have more chapters there. But essentially then it, and it, once you get into the trench deadlock, it, it sort of becomes easier to write because it's more regulated. So you can have your chapters every, and so you can sort of flow it like that really. 
and that was one of the themes I wanted to do was just to just to keep that going. So um, that was a kind of crucial consideration in terms of actual, you know, what could be covered, what couldn't be covered, just to try and keep the flow going, really. Um, one thing that really interests me, you've already mentioned that this is sort of something that looks at the higher level of the Western Front. Um, <clears throat> and the first thing people like to do, or definitely that laymen like to do, is start thinking about it in terms of heroes and villains in the First World War. You give a lot of credit to people like Losberg and Patan, for example. Do you still, um, in 2020, when you write this book, see any villains or butchers in the old style of the 70s, 80s? Not really. I mean, there are maybe the odd one, um, you know, the odd one or two that, that aren't really particularly competent. But I don't I don't see many of them in that sense. I think they some of them make more mistakes than others. Um, some of them are able to recover. Some of them are good at certain periods of the war and then not very good in other periods of the war. So I just think you have to see the whole thing and see the, uh, you know, the enormous challenges that they they try to deal with. And. You know, I think if we were to redo this today, I think you'd see a very similar thing. Some people would rise to the top very quickly because they have the character and the intelligence. Other people would be okay at it. Other people would be not so good at it. Um, so I think you, you've got, I mean, there are, there are certain instances, there are certain you know periods where people make big mistakes. You know, General Nivelle in the, in the French army makes a series of major errors. And I, I want, really wanted to like Nivelle. Um, and I'd love to read a modern biography of him, a proper, detailed, big, I just big can't biography find it in myself. I can't find enough to like him. I don't know about you, but it's like yeah. I, I know the intentions are good and everything, but there's I don't I can't get past the arrogance. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to I'd love to know more about him. I mean, there is there is a there is I think there's a couple of biographies, but they're not particularly good. I think so. I was using what I could, but I'd love to find out more of him. And I liked him, but he makes an enormous series of errors. Um, and, you know, again, with Hague, you know, 1st of July is all, and, and the Passchendaele campaign are always, you know, the two things that I think prevent Hague's, you know, the argument about Hague always gets stuck on them, really, because I think they, they, they reveal weaknesses. So there are, there are generals that make mistakes, but it's not, you know, it's not sort of the butchers and bunglers in the old way. I think a lot of them are, the problem is that they're, they're too often caricatured and seen as the sort of, um, cardboard cut out figures and you look at the photographs and the mustaches and they just they just don't seem real people so I really wanted to humanize them really uh, and you know trying to find anecdotes and descriptions of them was a real challenge and was something I really really looked for it's harder for the German generals it's very difficult you find you know you can find them maybe from Ludendorff Hindenburg but for this even for army group level commanders you know we've got Jonathan Boff's book on Rupre but pretty much everyone else is is very difficult to find their stories or their descriptions of what they're trying to do so searching for anecdotes to try and humanize them and to bring them a bit into the to the light was something I really wanted to do and it's challenging it's even more challenging for the eastern front but we'll not get into Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just because he is the flashpoint of a lot of people, what do you make of Goff? My my assumption, I think Lockie probably broadly agrees, is 17 bad, 18 not his fault. I'd I say it's 15 bad, 16 bad, <laughs> 17 bad, <laughs> 18. Yeah, I mean, he does pretty good, I think, in 18. I don't think you can criticise him too much for 18. Um, yeah, I, I think he's just over-promoted, really. I think he's just over-promoted and... Um, ultimately doesn't really ever feel he has control or a grip of a battle in a way that some other commanders do. Um, I think he would, he would have probably been quite a good divisional or core commander, but I just think he's, he's over-promoted and that's, you know, he doesn't really ever get, I, I, in a sense, I can, I can feel sorry for him a bit in 1917, certainly at, at Passchendaele because he doesn't really want to fight at Ypres. He doesn't know the ground. Um, but but ultimately doesn't really he's not really able to construct a battle plan that works unlike uh, unlike you know Plumer. I sort of, I'd speak in defence of Goff for a moment. I don't know if it's in defence of Goff or not. I mean, you know, I've, I've sort of found elements of my research where he's, he's quite proactive in terms of training. You know, getting his weaker divisions working alongside stronger divisions. For example, sixty-first uh, division comes into his army area in late nineteen sixteen, and he immediately puts them alongside eighteenth division uh, and has their officers going off and watching eighteenth division in their kind of attack practices. And sixty-second division shifts their style of, of of attacking accordingly. So and there's certain things that he takes seriously. I think by, you know, by the end of spring 1917, he was probably the only British army commander who had done something really, you know, his, his armies had, had kickstarted the advance to the Hindenburg line um, and, and pursued the German army very hard all the way up to it. So I don't know, was it, did Hay really have much of a choice in terms of who he put, um, the kind of the main offensive through Flanders too, given that Plumer hadn't hadn't had his success at Messine Ridge by by the time he no he'd lost the bluff the previous year and, and nearly got sacked because of that and, and didn't I think really if you're Hague, it's, it's easy to see why Hague sat there and thought this is the one the proactive one that's going to punch through and get stuff done. He loved Johnny Goff as well. Oh, poor Johnny Goff. He was the the great one that never was. That ricochet bullet, I think, robbed the British Army of something really quite special that would have done, would have made mistakes as well because it was a learning curve. But I think he had definitely, he was better than his brother. Anyway, but we, yeah. never, we never would have known because we've got an army to command. <laughs> I think with, he almost got division, didn't he? <laughs> I think with 1917 and Goff, I think there are alternative commanders. You know, I think the, the problem is that, uh, the other commanders aren't giving Haig what he wants, which is a breakthrough. They're saying, you know, we need to be a bit more cautious. And, and, and so he, you know, Plumer and Rawlinson are both cautious, more cautious individuals. And so, uh, so Haig goes for the individual who's more optimistic. And I mean, that, I can, that's the reasoning I understand from Haig. I, I just find that reasoning strange in mid 1917. Given given what has just happened with the Nivelle offensive, trying to break through the fact that you could you could then think you could then break through 
is, is, is for me, is, is a major flaw in Hayes' reasoning. Uh, but, you know, that, that's another book. Why, why do you think um, Haig is, is um, so compliant with regards to the Nivelle Offensive? Well, I suppose he has to be because you've obviously had the Calais Conference. You had like, David Lloyd George weighing in. Uh, David Lloyd George making it clear that he wants, you know, he wants the French to, to lead this part and he wants um, Haig to acquiesce within it. So it doesn't come about easily. Haig makes it clear that he does not like being under uh, Nivelle. Uh, so does Robertson. So there's a huge political scandal. Um, so, you know, Haig does his duty in, in, in sort of the spring of 1917 by supporting the French, but he's not happy about it and uh, makes it very clear that, you know, David Lloyd George has, has essentially broken the relationship with him and, and the army more generally. So Haig has to be, but it's not by the time you get to May, Haig's getting itchy and, uh, and as soon as Nivelle's star begins to wane, Haig is saying, okay, then I've supported you now. You need to support me. With sources, uh, when you're writing something like this, you, I always find that I find someone that I particularly love. Actually, when I was doing the George Fist stuff at the Royal Archives, um, it was Rawley because my God, his letters were good that he sent to the Royal household. Um, what particularly, what sources ended up being your go-to sources? Who did you really connect with when you were writing this? I don't know. That's a great question. I think the problem is I've got quite a lot of individuals. So it's, it's, you know, you, you move through individuals quite a lot. Um, you get, you know, you get some fantastic descriptions here and there. You get some very good generals that, that write, you know, some fantastic stuff. I think some of the French stuff is good. Some of the reports Petain writes are very clean and clear and you can see the, the intellect behind it. Um, someone like Charles Manjan as well. Some of his letters are very, punchy and aggressive as you'd expect so i enjoyed doing him um you know someone like george von der marwitz the the german uh, second army commander in 1918 writes a diary and and his descriptions are really you know beautifully written and really evocative of the period so you occasionally run a, run across some very interesting individuals that haven't had you know any attention really that you can do that so i think there were a few people in the book that you can you find these descriptions of that are quite that are quite nice and of course never been translated into English before so um, I think he was good um, I liked some of Petain's reports I find that them, them quite illuminating um, who else there's a few you know there's a few sort of lower down the chain of command that occasionally writes you know a beautiful letter or a beautiful report that you just you just think is, is wonderful um, yeah there's a lot of stuff that we obviously has already been published and you know has to be in there um, but there's there's also stuff that you find that you know has never been published before, so I like to put that that stuff in really. But I remember uh, George von der Marwitz's letters and or diary entries were very interesting. Um, some of Nivelle's stuff is quite interesting. Um, Petain's good, yeah. Staying with the theme of of research then, and and also kind of progress, I guess. I mean, I'm, my own research is is structured around um, the British Army's progress, and I think part of the the kick against the old Blackadder and Butchers and Bunglers view is the idea that that progress was steadily being made, and, and particularly with um, with an Anglophone audience, we, we talk about the BEF and the British Army. That's that's not necessarily a ball that you picked up and, and run with um, in, in the book. Um, where do you stand on the British Army's progress? How did it get better, if indeed it did? 
Oh yeah, I mean it, it gets better. There's no question about that. Um, you know, I think that's pretty. It's pretty obvious to see the, the changes that that it goes through, the technology and the innovation, um, the tactical innovation, the use of air power, armor, artillery. Again, that that's been well established, and I've you know I've gone with that. I think um, with the book, it's all about the innovation of all the other armies as well, and I think that's you know so it's it's looking at a lot of the innovations the French do, and then. Um, you know, obviously the German counter. But I think, you know, if you look at all of the armies on the Western Front, who innovates the most, who innovates the best? Um, I think this is a really interesting question. I think certainly in the early years, 14 to 16, I think the French, you, you would have to say the French really innovate significantly in terms of offensive tactics. But I think by the, the second half of the war, I think you've got to give the credit to the British because I think some of the stuff the British are doing in 1918, the, the integration of sort of combined arms stuff, the integration with air power and tanks, I think it is state-of-the-art stuff, but no one else is really doing it. So I think the French sort of peak really in 17, I think, in their development, and then they it just sort of peters off in 1918, really. Do a lot of fighting, but it's not really... Whereas the a lot of the innovations then come with the British. So... I would, you know, and again, the British start from a very small, you know, from a very small army. So I think you've got to give the British credit, really, when you look at it in the wider context. You've mentioned the Americans already and you do cover them. And there's a tendency with us as um, Anglophone and even European centric ones is to just sort of tap them on the end because they arrived late and that. But what is the significance of the Americans on the Western Front? Oh, this it's crucial. The Americans allow the victory. The, the Allies can't win without the Americans. I believe that very strongly. Um, the problem I had, I had this conversation with an American professor. He says, well, there's not enough Americans in the book. And I said, well, yeah, but if you're writing chapters that are about two or three months each, how many chapters can I include the American operations in 1918 in? Two chapters? Three chapters? You know, if we second Marne. And, so the, the problem is they do arrive in strength very, very late. But the the... You know, the, the fact that the Americans are involved in serious is, is a crucial configuration. First of all, it, it forces the Germans to attack in 1918 and it provides the, a crucial morale boost for the Allies when they're really low in 1917. And then it does provide that, that kind of real um, momentum in 1918 that allows the Allied attacks to really punch home. So uh, without without the Americans, the Allies can't win. So I, I run a, a, I'm a course tutor um, with an organisation called the Brilliant Club, and um, I get my students there, they're sort of GCSE age, to um, write an essay uh, at the end of the course on why did the Germans surrender in November 1918. Can I, can I say the Western Front was the key deciding factor? Yeah, yeah, they're defeated on the Western Front. Uh, they, they can't, they can't hold. Um, that's where their armies are broken. So that defines everything else. It's where the war is won and lost. You know, the Germans can win in against Russia. They can conquer the Balkans, but ultimately they can't hold on in the West. And that's what breaks their army and causes a revolution and forces the abdication of the Kaiser. So the Western Front is the decisive theatre of the war in, in terms of the big issues of, of whether Germany can survive or not. We've got to the part where uh, we sell your book to people. So why should people go out and buy your book? If they're looking at a whole shelf of World War One in Waterstone, why does yours stand out? Well, again, it, it includes all of the, uh, you know, all of the competence. So you don't just get one side, you get the whole side. You get a closely 
written narrative of the war. So you follow the generals and the politicians through um, through the whole thing. So you see how it rises and falls and you see people come back and people get sacked and you see that whole story of the characters. So I don't think it's really unlike anything else. It's it's narrative history in the grand scale. That's what I wanted to do it in the grand style of narrative history. So if you like a story, then there's plenty of stories there. Nick, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your new book. I know that Boney will put it on uh, the link with this episode for people to go and buy from our bookshop page. Um, the Western Front by Nick Lloyd. Thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you so much. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.